This is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true. And it is all that I need. I know every week I say, and I hope you're finding that more and more every week. So Jesus starts this chapter of, of Matthew 19. Matthew writes these words. Jesus finished saying these things. When Jesus finished saying these things, there's the value again of a verse-by-verse study. If we just plunked into Matthew 19 tonight and we hadn't spent the last, you know, 20 weeks, we wouldn't know, well, what is he talking about when Jesus had finished saying these things? So I, in the first question, I had you go back and say, what were the things that he was saying? See, even Jesus knows we got to go back and take a look again and again. Because what he said, he was, he was going after, you know, our behavior, our attitudes. Our, um, so I, after he said these things, I wanted you to take a look. And I, I wrote them down from the start of Matthew 18. Look how he started. He started with the question of the disciples, who is the greatest? Oh, did Jesus know that he had to start nipping this problem because the human nature of these disciples are just like human nature that we are still experiencing. Who's going to be great? Who's going to be the most noticeable? Who's going to get the most credit? Who's going to get the best position? Who's going to work themselves up so that everybody can see just how great I am? And Jesus said, oh, let me show you. And boy, did he ever... Did he ever show us a situation that they weren't expecting or us to make the point? And he made the point by, by calling a little child and said that his definition of greatness is not about how, how, what you achieve on this earth. His definition of greatness is how you are willing to humble yourselves before him and allow him to control your life, allow him to be top priority. Humility, when he says humble yourself, humility is when you stay in your place knowing how much you need to stay connected to him in his place, that we don't ever get these roles reversed that we don't even think that we know as much as God. I know it sounds terrible when we say it, but when we aren't willing to surrender to his will, that means we think we know better than he does. And so again, a reminder, if he says, you gotta, what's great in his eyes is when we stay humble before him. And then, and then he talked about um, our behavior. Our behavior matters. In fact, he even says, if you cause one of these little ones, and we said whether it's a little one literally or whether it's someone new in their faith, or that can be such a big group of people, someone who's looking to you, who you've been so, so vocal about, yes, I'm Christian, of course I'm Christian. I mean, and, and you're so vocal about it. He's saying, well, maybe somebody is watching you. And they're, they're looking to you to see what Christian looks like then. And he says, and if you're not, if your walk and your talk are not matching, if, you, if you're not, if you're just one of words and you're not one of action, and if your life isn't changing, if you, if you don't see a difference, you know that it is no longer I that lives, it's Christ that lives in me. If you don't see change, then something's wrong. And he said, if you're causing confusion to someone who's looking to you, it would be better if a millstone was hung around your neck and you were drowned in the depths of the sea. And I never saw that before or looked at it. He pretty much said, it's better if you don't even exist than lead someone wrong. You know, it's better, um, I mean, how, I don't know how he could put it. He said, you're better off not even being here than if you're causing someone else to go astray. And so that was major. 
And then he talked about the seriousness of sin. You know how you, if, if you know that, that you're pulled into a certain area, because we all have our weaknesses. And if you know and you're, you're starting, the older we get, the more we know where our weakness lies, where, where we're pulled. And he said, Boy, cut it off. Cut it off. You've got you've to know, and he's not talking about mutilating your body. He's just saying you've got to make a conscientious choice to either do something else or you've got to cut it out of your life. You've got to make a, just an absolute decision to say it can be no more a part of me. Maybe it's a place you go. Maybe it's someone you're with. Maybe it's something you're doing. Maybe it's something you're watching. And the Lord is showing you and he's saying, cut it out because it's only drawn you away. And it could even keep you out of heaven. He said, that's why he said it's better if you, were, if you go into heaven maimed. But at least then you cut sin out of your life. Take it seriously. Because if you don't take sin seriously, he's saying, you probably don't even have a relationship with me. Because if you had a relationship with me, that's why I prayed so about it tonight. If you really don't want to hurt him and you take sin seriously and you don't want to keep doing that to him, is that if you don't have that longing, then maybe you don't really love me at all. You don't really know me at all. So that too was very serious. And then he came back and talked about our worth. He always keeps reminding us how worth that we are and that when we do make a mistake or when we do veer off course, and then he gave us the parable of the 99 that stayed right there. But then, you know, you and I, we just jump the fence now and then, think we know better. But how beautiful our worth. He cares about us. And he comes after us. And we do matter to him. And we are worth it to him. And then he talks about the attitude of, okay, I understand that sometimes even our brothers and sisters in Christ, they hurt us. Because in our human nature, we say things or do things. And he says, if, if your brother or sister has, has caused you pain or hurt or done something wrong. He said, this is how you're supposed to handle it. Because last week, remember, we said that our natural impulse is either write them off or tell everybody. And so he shows the way, the proper way to handle when someone has wronged you. And how, you know, nine chances out of ten, it can be resolved just by that one-on-one -on -one meeting. And if that doesn't work, then, then you take someone with you so that they can see how important this is to you and that they're testifying to the fact with you. There's proof. And then he says, and then he says, if they don't listen, then you take them to the church. Now, that doesn't literally mean you place them in front of your church and say, this is what they've done. But he's saying, as a body of Christians, we believe the Bible says this. As a body of Christ, we follow his words. And this is, and you're going to show them proof of where they have gone against God's words. And that's the way the church, which is compiled of us, are supposed to act. And then he makes that comment where two or three are gathered in his name. There he will be. Just a reminder we don't need big crowds. Do you know that his power working in the small is, is, is in the big? I mean, he just wants to remind us that he is at work in whatever number. But he also likes it when, when, we, when two or three agree. Because sometimes when we're just one, we can say we can want to interpret Scripture the way we want it to fit into our seat. That's what it says. Perfectly fine that I do. You need someone to come alongside of you. You've got to agree. Sometimes we need two or three to come together and say, let's talk about this. Because in our human nature, we want to see what we want to see so that we can excuse our behavior. 
And then he gave the parable at the end about, about how important forgiving is. And he told about that, that master who loaned this man an unpaybackable amount. Now he called it in, and of course the man couldn't pay it back, and he begged, and the man said, okay, I will, I will bear it, I will take it, I will pay it myself. And of course this whole parable is to show you and me that we, he, he has given us a debt that we could never pay back, our eternal life, our redemption. We could never buy that. We could never pay it back. And that's why he says, then, if you understand how much I've forgiven you, a debt that is not paybackable, I just did it because I love you. Then that is the way you are to live out your life to others. Because if you really know how much I have forgiven you and what I've forgiven you of and where you would be without my forgiveness, then maybe you will see how easy it is to forgive someone else. And he says, and if you can't forgive and you carry that unforgiving spirit and you let that turn into bitterness and hatred, then maybe you don't understand what I did for you. I think he really made that clear in this parable. It sets you right up straight. It might even raise the hair on your arms because it shows you how important it is. I wonder if they don't want your forgiveness. I wonder if they... Too bad. You know what? That's between you and the Lord. Because forgiveness, believe it or not, is not about you. It's about you. You're letting it go. Forgiving is when you let it go so that you can go on living. Because an unforgiving spirit, you carry that. And it weighs so much. And he wants us. Do you remember? Truth sets us free. He wants us to live in freedom. And he knows that an unforgiving spirit bogs us down. It helped me to realize that there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness only takes me and the Lord. And sometimes there isn't a reconciliation because reconciliation means it takes both of you. And so I think that helps. If if a person doesn't want to reconcile, well, then that's their problem. But we're not, he doesn't use the word reconciliation here. He uses the word forgiving. And that is our responsibility. So all that is what he was saying. And then as we begin today, they, he moved on then into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some, here they come again. You can almost see it, can't you? Crabby-looking men. Here they come. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. Trick him. You know, trip him up. They wanted to be able to say, see? So they're at it again. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, I did some studying on that because I thought, what a question. Why would they use that as a test? And I found the most interesting thing. And you can, again, take it or leave it. It's because, you know, how did somebody know this? But a lot of theologians, they are a lot smarter than me. And uh, sometimes they have learned the culture of the day more than I knew of the culture of the day. But in those, in, in the culture of that day, marriage was expected by every, every, in fact, every young man was supposed to be married by 20. And the only person that couldn't or that was kind of excused from that is someone who went into the so-called ministry. Otherwise, every other young man was supposed to be married by 20. They felt that that was God's command on to be fruitful and multiply. Okay, then they had two rabbis, and you know what the Jews thought of their rabbis. I mean, their word was law. And there happened to be two different schools of thought. There were some rabbis that took this school of thought. They were more strict. They went 
according to um, biblical principles, and they stuck to it, and, you know, it's kind of like the non-negotiable. But those rabbis were not popular. See, this is that fight with human nature. And then there was another group of rabbis who were more lax, you know, gave more excuses. I mean, this is this is what this is what they they said that perfectly fine to divorce your wife if she spoiled your dinner, if she talked to a man in the streets, if she spoke disrespectfully to your parents. If she was a loud talker, man, that gave me chills. <laughs> I didn't even tell Tom this one. <laughs> yeah, and then then I found this was another one. If they just found somebody they like better. Now you know human nature. Now that that particular particular group of rabbis, oh, they were popular because what their itching ears said, oh, sure, you know, gave them the excuses. So that was why, and that makes more sense to me, why then, why they tried to use this subject as a trick to try to trip them up is because, okay, Jesus, which, which rabbis are you going to agree with? And they thought they had them because if they went with either side, of course, the other one would be flipping out. And they thought they had them. So what does Jesus do? Instead of, you know, instead of, this is how he answers his question, their question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? For any and every reason. Instead of talking about divorce, what does Jesus go to? He talks about what? Marriage. Let's, let's talk about marriage. Because you know what? If we get that straight, guess what? Guess won't guess what won't happen. You know, that's what he's trying to say. And he just turned it right around and said, Haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Now what does he say? If you take that, those words, if you take that passage of scripture and you believe it, he's not saying it's gonna be easy. But he says, you know what? If you both together work at this principle, he's saying, we wouldn't even talk about that. That wouldn't even be an issue. And that's smart. In fact, did you ever hear Billy Graham and they talked about it? You know, they asked him a question, of course, about divorce. Did, did you ever consider divorce? He says, no, never. Murder, maybe, but not <laughs> divorce. Because he knew. I mean, I mean, I, of course, he was kidding, you know, because thou shalt not kill is in there too. But what he was trying to say is, yeah, if you think that we had it easy, you think about how many months he would go away at a time. Or she had to stay back and raise those children. If you listen to him talk. And if Ruth Bell Graham hadn't been so conscientious of God's word, I'm sure the one of those trips she was said, and we're not going to be here when you come back if you're leaving again. Because it isn't fair. It isn't right. Look what you're doing to me. Look what you're doing to the kids. Okay, see, the two have got to work together at this, but Jesus said, you do, and this is what you keep. So then it comes, then they come back and said, okay, but people don't. Even Moses, and they thought they had him again. Because, you know, we listen to Moses, everything Moses says. Did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Yeah, why then? Because Moses did. Why, why was it okay then? 
And Jesus comes back, comes back and he has the best answer. Moses permitted you divorce because your hearts were hard. And I had you look at that. In fact, I stopped. I wanted to stop you there and have you answer a question about that. What, what does that mean? What does it mean for a heart to be hard? And there's really a very simple answer. A heart gets hard when you stop listening to God's word and his commands and his instruction and his advice and his wisdom. And he said, you know what? It, it all, it all, you know, it all hits the fan when self gets in the way and you don't want to listen to this and you don't want to because you are hurt, you are this, you are that. And no, your heart gets hard because you want and you deserve and it isn't fair. And you can go on and on and say, well, you know, it's supposed to be 50-50. Anybody in a marriage, do you ever agree that it's 50-50? That is so nuts. Sometimes it's me giving 100%, but sometimes it's Tom giving 100%. Marriage, when you have to, you've got to both be working at it. This involves two, and the two shall become one, which means that you both have the same idea, the, the same purpose, the same, the same desire to keep this going. And I know, I know that it, it doesn't work that way, <laughs> but it's supposed to. And it can, with God's help, because we've been given the power of his spirit to be able to do what we can't do for ourselves. That's why Jesus went back with this question and said, this is a simple answer to everything. You, when self gets in the way, that's what's caused the mess. That's what's caused the division. That's what's caused the problems. But when you are working together According to the principles of God, he promises that it will work. He doesn't say it's easy. He just says that's the way I set it up. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. I know we've been through that. I don't think we have to talk about it again. But again, it shows how Jesus says, I want you to take this serious. I mean, every, every young couple that is ready to, I hope that in their premarital counseling, I hope every pastor or whoever's going to marry him takes them to this passage of scripture and shows them how serious marriage is. And this is how you make it work. And this is the only way it works. But if you are not connected to, to God, if you are not connected by his spirit at the cross, getting his spirit into your life to be able to help you do what you can't do for yourself, yeah, then we, then we get selfish and we get a hard heart and we stop listening to him because after all, you come up with all your excuses. And the why he and why he says that again is because he says, "I want you to know I take marriage seriously." And so maybe you might think, and I'm going to just say this one more time, you might think that you know the Michigan state piece of paper that divorces you separates you too. But in my eyes, when you when you committed your lives before God. I put it there. I put the two together as one. So that's why he says, I still consider you married. Now, is this the unpardonable sin? No, because we all fail. And this is not the unpardonable sin. And divorce does happen. And self does get in the way. And hard hearts do happen. And yep, it does. 
But what he's trying to do here is trying to present, prevent, because he knows. I don't. I have not talked to anybody who has been divorced that has said to me that it hasn't been without its consequences. That it, there hasn't been some some things that have happened that they wish they hadn't. That innocent victims along the way. There's always consequences. I mean, it's not that the Lord can, you know, continue on and you see many blessings because I'll tell you, he's so gracious. But he's just trying. And, and this is just one area. But he says there's so many areas what, why his instruction needs to be followed because he says, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to keep you from hurt. I'm trying to keep you from from what a lot of these consequences happen when you disobey. I'm just trying to prevent them. So it might seem that I'm strict and mean, and that's, but he says, I'm just trying to prevent you from having to go through the consequence. The disciples said to him, if this is the, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. I have to say, I'm sure Jesus did smile when they said that. And Jesus replied, and this was such a great answer. Not everyone can accept this word, but those to whom it has been given. In other words, yeah, some some are going to get married and some are not going to get married, and and I can work in both. And then he, he says this, for some are eunuchs. That was another way of saying those who, those who voluntarily, voluntarily not get married. Some of those volunteer not to get married because they were born that way and they just have no desire to. Never do. Just don't have the desire. Now here, if you want to take a literal with eunuchs, it could mean, and please, um, I don't mean to be so blunt, but maybe they weren't born with the right parts. Um, That's all I'm going to say. I mean, so sometimes, you know, they just can't have, that's just the way they were born. That's just the way it is. The second reason was sometimes they were made that way by men. You know, maybe, maybe you know, through through their growing up years or whatever, they they just decided they weren't going to. They made that decision through experiences, or or they just felt the call of God on them that nope, you know, that they weren't going to get married, and that's why it leads to the next one. And some do it because they're going to renounce it because they want to commit, and we know that from you know, different situations that people like nuns and, you know, they choose not to do it because they they feel that they're going to give their life in service. Paul, the Apostle Paul, chose not to. So he said, you know, there's reasons. And the one who can accept this should accept it. You know, it's always stay connected to God's plan, God's will. I mean, I have a gal on my Tuesday morning class. She would just love to be married. And it just didn't happen. And she has to, she's got to accept this. And this verse really has come to a, to a place in her heart that she's got to say it often. And, and if she goes back to this verse, instead of going to her own human feelings, if she lets the word of God... The one who can accept this should accept it. Sometimes God has a different plan. So, that's why when I asked, is marriage for everyone? No, it's not. And for various reasons. And then, is having children for everyone? No. But what does it all boil down to in your decision-making or whatever? It all has got to boil down to you accepting 
God's plan for your life. And I'm telling you, some of these things, let's say you grew up and you wanted this so much and you wanted a certain thing and it didn't happen. And I think this is where God is really starting to say, I'm going to, and it's Matthew 19, and it has to come after Matthew 1 through 18. I mean, he's saying, you've got to know me so well that you trust me with the answer that I've given you. Because I do have a plan. There was a reason why I created you. And there is an experience that I have to bring you through because this is how I need you to be a part of the kingdom of heaven on this earth. All right, then. Little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on him and pray for them. You know, I'm going to go back. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to ask every one of you because I think as any of you, by raise of hands, I want you to be honest with me. Has life ever disappointed you? <laughs> I mean, and, and I don't mean to be silly, but I think this is the point Jesus is trying to make. Every one of us can say that something happened that I didn't expect or that I didn't want, and it could be, I mean... It could be uh, having children or um, marriage or, but I think if we were all honest, we all could say, and I could see by your raised fans, that we have to come to grips with the fact that God had a different reason. He had a different plan, and he says, and if you can accept this, you better. Because if you don't accept it, what's going to happen? Oh, there, okay, there's that unforgiving. You're going to shake your fist at him. You're going to start not liking him. That's going to hurt your relationship with him. You're going to be blaming him. I mean, this is, I think this is a really important, very, very personal verse. Because I didn't plan to do that, but as I was going through, I mean, the Lord said, stop, because I want you to ask him that. Now, did I audibly hear that? No, I didn't audibly hear that, but it came from somewhere. I'm not that smart. So I stopped, and I believe that that was important because I think in all reality, we all have a disappointment that we have to accept and say, this is the way it is. And if I don't accept it, that this is part of God's plan, then this is going to drive me crazy and everybody around me is going to suffer because of it. All right, now we can move on. Then the little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. I know at first I thought, what's the matter with you guys? But you know, they probably had places to go and people to see and, and children, you know, they probably, you know, sometimes they're, they're kind of, they make us stop and they, they uh, change our schedule. They, kids do that. And the disciples probably for many reasons said, no, we don't have time for this. Or, huh, have you ever said that to your children or grandchildren? Mm, I don't have time for this right now. And I think it's another real grabber of a lesson for Jesus to say, you will never get that moment back. And sometimes we have to let things go. Because what did Jesus say when they said, come on, we got, we got places to go. We got things to do. We got to keep our schedule. Yep, yep. <laughs> and Jesus said, stop. Let the little children come to me. And don't prevent them because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Well, they're probably saying, oh yeah, that's right, he just said that. I mean, look at our previous lesson. He reminds us that that's what great is, to be like this child. But how are these children going to know unless you take the time to teach them? 
And I think we've gotten ourselves so busy in this world that we don't take these moments because these moments are critical because how are these children going to know unless someone who believes it with all their heart teaches them. Let the little children come to me and don't prevent them. Don't let anything, don't let anybody. Those children matter and our behavior matters. And when he had placed his hands on them, he, he went on from there. See, it'll all turn out. I bet they got to the next place just when they thought, or so what if it was a little later? Or maybe it didn't matter anyway. You know, I just, when he placed his hand, then he placed his hands on them and then went on from there. I mean, he kept going. But you take the time, you take the moment. I used to sing a song that when we have this moment to hold in our hands and to touch as it slips through our fingers like sand, Yesterday's gone and tomorrow may never come, but we have this moment today. And I think the enemy of this world has just gotten us on the wrong track, saying, you gotta keep doing and everybody's running at such a fast pace and just a thought, but I'm taking it right from here. Okay, and right after that, we hear this. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, and I asked you in question six, can you think of why Matthew put these next verses after the previous ones? I mean, you are following that story about children and making sure that we have to teach them When I looked at the story of this rich young ruler, all of a sudden I thought, maybe he had parents that were too busy and never taught him. Oh, maybe they gave him plenty. Maybe his inheritance was great and they passed on the power. You know, maybe they did all that, but but it says, now a man came up to Jesus, the teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, this is where I went back into the King James because it called, it, this, this man said to Jesus, he called him good teacher. And Jesus said, damn, what, why do you call me good? So that's what the King James said. The NIV says, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Jesus replied, why do you ask me about what is good? Same kind of thing. The man's, got, the man's been taught the wrong thing about what good is. See, Jesus' definition of words are so different than ours sometimes. You know, like great. And now we're hitting another one, good. Jesus got a whole different definition of what good means. When you and I sing, God is so good, God is so good, we usually mean it, well, when everything is going my way. But God is so good, and I hope that by these phrases that you've learned and you've answered, you're starting to see God is good all the time, all the time, God is good, even though it might not look good in your definition of good. If you really believe, if you really believe that God is good all the time, all the time God is good. See, that, that means you are trusting him even when it doesn't look humanly good to you. But you believe his definition he is going to use this to mold you, to use this experience, to train you. Do you believe the verse when Paul says, for I know that in all things he's working for the good of those who love him. All of that ties together. If you really believe that his definition is his will. God is good all the time. 
all the time God is good. But see, you've got to be taught that because human nature tells you God is good when you get all, everything you want. Good times are when they're all going your way. It's hard for us to say when we're going through a suffering or a trial or whatever, oh, they're good times. Because we've been so programmed to believe that good times are when things are just all going our way. So in this part of scripture, I think this man has been taught the natural human way of what good is. To be good, because when, when um, Jesus asked him about these particular commandments, oh yeah, good works, I do these good things, I'm a good person. Now when I found that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of the Gospels call them rich. I noticed that Mark is the only one that calls them young. And Luke is the only one that calls him a ruler. No, it's now in my Bible it says in the heading, a rich young. So, but the Gospels, they all describe him in a little different way. So I think we were fine to say that he's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. And the reason why I wanted you to see that is because if you look at these three things, wouldn't you think that this guy's got everything this world has to offer, right? He's got all the money he needs. He's young, so he's got his health. He's got a lot of years ahead of him. And he's a ruler, so he's got a lot of power. Now these, in the world's eyes, this is what we live for. This is what we attain. This is the definition of great. Rich, young, ruler. I think it's important that we see that. Okay, so he's got everything this world has to offer, and yet he comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to get eternal life? What good thing must I do? I think his hand was in his back pocket already, right, reaching for his credit card or checkbook. I really do. Because he's been so taught and so conditioned that you can buy anything. And after all, just tell them your name. They'll recognize who you are. You know, there were so many things. And yet, he comes to Jesus because what, what is he missing? Does it show you that everything of this world you might have at all that you might not? Because look, if you had everything this world had to offer and it was totally satisfying, would there be any reason for this man to come and feel like he was lacking something? This proves to you and I, and another verse you can take your children to or in a teaching mechanism to say this verse shows you that you can attain everything this world has to offer and you still don't have it. You are still not satisfied. You are still not content. You are still longing. So Jesus says to him, there's only one who is good. And if you want to enter life, you have to obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. Jesus was really clever. And I say that in a good way because this he was trying to get this man to take a look at his life. Because you know what? I think this was a great guy. I think he not only was rich and young and had power, I think he was a nice, I think he was a nice man too. Because when Jesus said, okay, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, love your neighbors yourself, this guy comes back and says, I've done them all. 
All of these I've kept. What do I still lack? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Jesus showed him, yes, you're, you can be a nice guy. You can be following the, the commands that have your relationship with people. Good. But did you notice these are toward these are the latter part of the Ten Commandments. The first part of the Ten Commandments starts with what? Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. I am the Lord thy God. That's the way the Ten Commandments start. It starts right out saying, I've got to be number one. I've got to be the one you put your faith in. I've got to be the one that's top priority. I've got to be the God of your life. Because you can come and you can do the relationship with man to man and you can have that all all fine. You could be the nicest person in the world. You could, well, look, it says it all. He did him. I think he's a great guy. So Jesus now is going to test him because now... It all boils down to your relationship with me. And this is where the test comes. If you really want this, and when he said if you want to be perfect, because this is where our perfection starts. When we acknowledge who he is, there is none like him. He is our way of salvation. I mean, that we are not going to get to perfection until we acknowledge this. So Jesus was right when he said, if you want to be perfect, you have got to start with your relationship with him first. So he says, this is where, this is where, you know, where the rubber meets the road. If you want to be perfect, you go, you sell your possessions, you give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. This was the ultimate test because what was the God of this man's life? Obviously, was his material things. It was his power. It was because follow means, me means you put all else aside and you come and follow me. So it was not only, it isn't just money. It was you deny yourself. And you follow me. You put everything aside. All this rich, young ruler business, you put it all behind, and you just follow me. And there's the ultimate test. And when the young man heard that, he, he went away very sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth. Again, I hope you're learning now as you're studying. Whenever you see it, and I tell you the truth, he is going to have a good one. I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And please don't just think this is money. He's using this as an example because I think it's easy for us to understand it because it does have a powerful hold. But he's saying anything that you think you can't live without. I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I want you to quickly turn to Revelation chapter 3. It's worth the time. Because I don't know if you remember, if you've studied Revelation, the letter to the seven churches, the last church that Jesus told John to write to was the church of Laodicea. Because that was the church that didn't have Jesus at all, had everything but had their priorities all messed up, had big buildings, had big programs, had a big sign. Everybody knew. Look what it says.
these are the words to the church of Laodicea. Verse 14 of chapter 3, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Jesus is saying to John, write this down. And this is me talking. Jesus is saying, this is me talking. I know your deeds. Now remember, this isn't just these seven letters to the churches. Isn't just a particular church building with a certain amount of people in them. The church consists of who? You and me. So these seven letters to the churches, I'm saying you don't go through them looking at it as a particular building filled with church, with church people. You look at everything that the letter stands for and say, I, when we study Revelation, I said, go home and find what church you belong to. Because in those seven churches, because seven is the complete number, you are a member of one of those churches. And this is the most dangerous church to belong to. So he, he, he might be talking about you, and this is how serious it is. And this is this rich young ruler. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And if you think that means it's okay, either he would rather have you not know him that's not at all the reason why he said I'd rather have you hot or cold is because cold was always good for something hot is good for something but if you ever gone to a faucet and you needed a nice cold cup of water and you took a sip and that water was lukewarm it didn't do a thing for your thirst have you ever been ready for a hot shower or a hot bath because you worked hard and your muscles were aching and you couldn't wait to turn that faucet on and someone had used it way before you and there isn't one bit of hot water left? All that's trickling down is a little lukewarm. It's good for nothing. He said, I'd rather have you good for either cold or hot. Either temperature is good. But when you try playing this lukewarm business, when you are good for nothing, I don't care what you do that's cold. It's beneficial. I don't care what you do that's hot. It's beneficial. But if you're doing nothing, then your life is worth nothing for me. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth. See, they're so stinking cocky. They think, see, I'll look at it. I got everything that this world has to offer. I've acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve put on your eyes so that you can see and all of those examples he was talking about who himself you are not rich you don't see you're not wearing the white robe of righteousness. You don't have a thing that matters if you don't have me. When the disciples heard this, back to Matthew 19. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? I'll tell you, I busted right out loud when I read that. Because they're so typical. Because they're looking at this rich young ruler and they're saying, this guy's got everything. So if he can't be saved, who in the world can't be? And Jesus said, with man, this is impossible. 
but with God, all things are possible. Bottom line, he's repeating, you cannot be saved. You cannot be bought back. You cannot have eternal life with me. You have nothing if you think you're going to get it through this world. Because with man, all things are possible. Through the world, it's impossible. But all things are possible with me. I can save the lost. I can save you. My blood's going to cover it all for you. So what nothing of this world can do, I can do. And then Peter said, we have, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Isn't that typical human nature again? Hey, come on. We've given three of our years. We left our fishing boats. We left our families. We've loved everything to follow you. Uh, what's in it for us? And Jesus says, okay, I'll answer you. I'm going to tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, which is when? When Jesus comes back and all things are made new because the old order of things are passed away. This is a great verse. I'm going to tell you the truth. You might look like you're sacrificing like crazy here and you're not getting credit here and all this kind of stuff and you're forgiving and and um, no one wants to be reconciled or whatever. All these, it might not turn out the way. Your life might not be the way you thought. You, you might have a big disappointment in your life. He's, he's putting it all together here. He's, let me just tell you about this life here. I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me. Now, he's going to talk personal to his, well, leaven, really. But then we know that Matthias takes his place, so Judas's place. So when he says, you will have followed, you who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake, he will receive a hundred times as much and will, no questions, no doubt. You talk about singing blessed assurance right there. No doubt whatsoever. These verses right there, it is so, it will be worth it all. There's no way you can outgive me, he's saying. You might have had a life that you didn't intend, but I did. It might not have been the life you expected to have, but I did. I created you with experiences and purposes in mind. And I will see to it that it will be so worth your while. But he says, let me just end with this. Just so that you know, to go back to the story of the rich young ruler, but many who are first will be last. And many who are last will be first. In other words, he's saying sometimes maybe you didn't, maybe no one knows your name. Maybe you did a work for me that only I know. Maybe there have been people, maybe like the Billy Grahams, who knows? He's just saying, I want to make sure you know that there is no job even if you don't get recognition, there's no job too small, or if you don't get credit. I have to tell you a little story about something I read. There was this pastor, like a Billy Graham, that won many, many souls to the Lord. And in a dream, in a vision one night, he was told that he was not going to get the reward in heaven that he expected. 
And the bird, and so he said, I said, well, who's gonna, who's gonna get the reward then? And the answer came, the man that was sitting on the steps praying for you before you, before you preached. And I thought that was such a good story just to remind us, don't ever think that it's just those who've done mega major things that everybody is patting them on the back for. And maybe it's like another one of those letters in Revelation. Out of the seven letters, only two did not need a rebuke. And one of the letters was to a little church that had the temptation of being felt insignificant. What could I possibly do? How does my life matter? I'm just such a little... Jesus said to John, you write and you tell them what I think of them. And I think in this verse here, we are reminded, I think it's an encouraging verse. Because I think the more earthly recognition you, you get, the, the easier it is to get big human head. And he says, just know that when you do it for him and him alone, he says, I see that. And everybody who thought that the first might become last, but those who are last, I see. And I might put them at the front of the line. It's worth serving them, isn't it? It is. Have a good week.